Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. I'll be reading from verse 15 through verse 20. Luke 3, 15 to 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Holy Father, I ask that, again, You allow me to speak truth. That You would tie me to this text. You would tie me to Your whole counsel laid out in Holy Scripture. That we would see what You have purposed us to see through the pen of Your servant Luke, recounting the words of Your prophet John to the glory of Your name. Amen. What we've seen over the preceding weeks is John the Baptist comes on the scene down by the River Jordan and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins saying turn your hearts back to God and we saw how the heart always moves your actions so he had no problem saying don't think you can mouth words or get wet with water but bear fruits of that heart, of that repentance, which could be summed up as loving other human beings. And now, Luke picks up again in verse 15 with the story. So, let's just go straight to it. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, No, duh. I mean, they have Scripture. John looks like a prophet. He speaks like a prophet. This is different. They know the prophecies of the Messiah, the Son of David, who is to come, the Redeemer. And this in their hearts thing, it doesn't mean they weren't talking about it. The point is, this is what's going on in the crowds day after day. They're starting, you can hear the chatter. Is, is, who is he? Is he, the, is he the one? Is he the son of David? John answers. And in his answer, we ought to learn something. Because the one answering was the greatest prophet born of woman. Put yourself in comparison to God's call in your life. I do. And his answer is essentially 
summed up like this. He says, I don't want you to be distracted with my message about me. Three parts to it. The one coming, the Lord Jesus, is mightier than I. Secondly, yeah, I, John, I'm called to baptize with water. I'm called to prepare your hearts for His coming. But don't miss it. <laughs> My baptism is nothing in comparison with His baptism. And the third thing is this. I'm preparing the way. This one coming is the judge. Just hear it. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So notice, He is mightier than I. This is, these are not words that are just spoken in a vacuum. In the Scripture, in the Hebrew Scripture, in what we call the Old Testament Scripture, that idea of strength, power, might, connected to the coming Redeemer is an Old Testament idea. Let me just give you one taste. In, in Isaiah chapter 11, the first two verses, we hear this. There shall come forth a shoot, here, a plant there. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay, stop. If you don't know your Bible history, Jesse is David's dad. David is the greatest king. David is the one God made a covenant with, saying, from you, David, a son of David will come, referring to Jesus. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. One shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. John sees this. This is the one that I'm preparing for. He's the all-powerful, mighty, promised one. And hear the comparison. <laughs> Mightier than anything I, John, am. Also notice John's appropriate feelings. Even though he's the greatest of prophets born of women, he knows his place. When his commission is to point to the Savior. He knows the manner, the disposition in which He is to do it. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You've got to get the first century picture here with the Jews. You know, everyone either went around barefoot or, or they wore sandals. And slaves, one of their jobs 
was to untie the sandal of their master when, when they get home. It was deemed to be so low and degrading to the Jews that Jewish slaves did not do it. It just became standard that they're not going to do that. Not that. John's point isn't, I ain't going to undo that. His point is, I'm not worthy to even do the most demeaning task with this one. And he says, as great as my baptism is with water, it pales in comparison with the one I'm introducing in his baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's a big question right there. What does it mean? How are we to understand John's point here about Jesus coming and baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Well, we've had 2,000 years of church history and there have been several interpretations of what people may think it means. One that has been offered is when you open up Luke, volume 2, called Acts of the Apostles, on the day of Pentecost, you see the word fire again in Holy Spirit, which they're waiting for, and tongues as a fire rested upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not what he means, though. Another interpretation is that what John is referring to about Jesus and His baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire is one baptism of judgment. Where not only is the burning and the fire this judgment, but you can see this in the Old Testament where, where the Spirit Himself, God the Holy Spirit, could come and blow in destructive judgment. But I do not think that's what he means. What about this? John's referring to Jesus coming with two distinct baptisms. One of the Holy Spirit, salvation. And the other with fire. Judgment. When you look into the Old Testament Scriptures, often the idea of God's coming with fire is connected with judgment. Here's a taste in Isaiah 29, verse 6. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquakes and great noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Or Isaiah 66, starting with verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury. And His rebuke 
with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. But I don't think that's what our text means. That Jesus is coming with two distinct baptisms. One of salvation and one of judgment. And the reason I don't is because of the words in our text. Three points to make. One. There is only one object of the verb to baptize. Meaning, when he says, he will baptize, there's your verb, there's your action, he's going to do this thing. Baptize the object, you. There's only one you. There's not two yous. There's not, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and then another baptism, you. There's one object. You put that together with the second point. If John meant to say about Jesus that there are two distinct baptisms, it would have been so easy for him to put in the word or instead of and. To say, He's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit or with fire. But he didn't use that little Greek word, which is one letter, the eta, a, meaning or. He used chi, and. And the third reason is that there's only one preposition in the original text. Preposition meaning the word here, the word with. He's coming to baptize you with or by or however you want to say it. In the Greek it's in. There's, it's only there once. But if you have an ESV or an NIV in front of you, they translate it twice. And they have no right to do it. When they translate it, He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and He'll baptize you with fire. No, it is He will baptize you, one object, with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, I conclude that John is referring about Jesus here to one single baptism with the Holy Spirit in fire. And that fire is this purging, cleansing, painful, sanctifying process and agent. Who is the Holy Spirit? And so, what we have here is Jesus, He says, is coming. He's going to come with the Holy Spirit and the purging. These people, which means those who aren't being baptized. And we have the model with John's water. Not everyone of the Jews there received his baptism. And it was only pointing to this baptism ultimately. And so when Jesus comes with the baptism, with the Holy Spirit and with fire, it is by definition creating separation. Division, distinction. First among the Jews, 
and then eventually the whole world. Just we, If we flash forward in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 12, listen to how Jesus will speak. Starting with verse 49, Luke 12. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son. And son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. And mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So, when John contrasts his own baptism with water, with Jesus' baptism, with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying, my baptism can only outwardly point to what He is going to bring and do inwardly to those who are receiving that baptism. And so with John, I mean, with Jesus' baptism, there are two sides to it. Just like with John. John was a divisive prophet. Jesus knew it. He caught on to it. I'll tell you if you tell me this. We ain't going to speak. The people won't like us Jewish leaders if we comment on what we really feel. He was, John was a divisive prophet. Not all received his baptism. And not all received Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And thus there are two sides. It divides humanity into two groups. Those who accept that activity of the Lord Jesus and baptizing them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And those who do not respond to the good news of His coming and His work. Which John goes on to explain in verse 17. Talking about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in His hand in order to clear His threshing floor and to gather wheat into His barn. But the chaff, He will burn with unquenchable fire. So There's a flow of what John's doing here. He's saying, those who are dunked, who are immersed in the Spirit by Christ, those are the forgiven ones. Remember, he's preaching a, a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. These are the forgiven, the saved, the wheat. And all others are the chaff. Now, they knew this analogy in the first century. The farmer takes his harvest of wheat and you bring it in and you start pounding on it, threshing it. And when you do that, the, the internal good grain that you're going to use and make bread with and all that, 
separates from the outer shell. And then you take the winnowing fork, which is a big wooden shovel-like looking fork thing, and you throw that stuff up in the air, and the light outer shell from the kernel, the lightness, it just floats away in the wind over there, and the heavier good grain falls. Then he takes the grain, puts it in the barn. Then they sweep up all the outer shell, the chaff, and burn it. And John's point is that the coming of Jesus means there are only two destinies. The wheat, those who were baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, and those who remain hard-hearted to the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The chaff. And he throws in this modifying word. Unquenchable. Unextinguishable. That's text. John is an evangelist. John is pointing people to the good news. Listen to the very next verse in verse 18. So with many other exhortations this way, what we just heard from John, so he went on to preach this good news to the people. That's the Gospel word there. This is the Gospel. And I just think, if that's true, John really does have a lot of crucial lessons for us 21st century Christian, evangelical Christians that we should learn from Him. I like the way the Gospel of John put it. Chapter 1, verse 8. Because this should be true of us. He was not the light. And neither are we. I know that we have a light in us and beyond a stand. That's true, God, it. Jesus is correct. But hear the point. You're not the goal. No preacher is the goal. John seemed to fear people valuing him above what they ought. John was not the light, but came. To bear witness about the light. And if we have come to be baptized by Jesus in the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, we want to be better witnesses. And he lays out a grid. Teaching us something about how to do that. And the first thing is this. Gospel preaching. Gospel talking one-on-one, giving the message, requires 
confronting people with their sin. The good news of the message that John's preaching in our text as a whole in chapter 3 is summed up as he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If fellow human beings do not see and feel themselves to be sinners, they will never feel or come to a true Savior. I won't do it. What if you got home today and a telegram showed up at your door from Governor Brown? That's, I haven't said that yet. That's weird. Announcing that he has pardoned you from your life sentence in the state penitentiary. Wouldn't you be thrilled? No, you wouldn't. Because you're sitting here right now at Sovereign Grace Fellowship. You're not in a prison chapel this morning. You haven't been convicted of a crime. You have not been given a life sentence. You're not going to be thrilled at all. You say, what the heck is this? So if you walk up to many people in this world and you announce to them a pardon from the coming wrath that their sin deserves, they're not going to feel thrilled. Not only that, they may feel very offended. What's the answer to that problem that we Christian people have then? What do we do? The answer is not, yeah, that was kind of too clear for them. Let's generalize Christianity. Let's generalize Jesus and the Gospel. Let's say something like, Jesus loves you and He has a really good plan for your life. How's that sound? The problem is that millions of people out there would totally agree with you. Of course He does. I'm lovable. I'll join Jesus' team. Anybody who thinks that highly of me, I'm in. But are they coming to a Savior from the wrath of God that they know they deserve because of their sin? Are they opening up that message for what it is? Unending, eternal pardon. Compliments of Jesus Christ alone. That's our question. How in the world do we get people who are just like us, who think God and I, we're okay. 
We're doing just fine. How do we get them to see it's not the case? That your sin, not just things you've done, but the very ugliness of your heart towards God, in religion even, is a spurning of God's very person in glory. How do we get them to see it? God's method is His Word. God's method is to understand what God has revealed about Himself and somehow put that, you can put it short, things are so clear about some very important things in Scripture. So His method is tell them about the Creator, about God, who is holy. He's holy other. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's beautiful. He is the I Am without beginning and without end. And He always was. And then He created humanity. You, sir or ma'am, is one of these. He created you in His own image for the purpose that you would reflect His glory. And therefore, as creatures, the only appropriate response, the only appropriate dynamic and way to live before your Creator is as a dependent, not an independent, a dependent creature who, who must, has to look to the, to the reality of this. He is everything I need. And to trust that He enjoys being everything you need. And Genesis says that was the essence of sin. Maybe God's not so trustworthy, says the serpent, and thus Eve says, maybe he's really not out for my good. That's why he commanded me. And you show them that this heart of faith, for which is the only righteous response to God as a creature, he has laid out what it looks like in his holy law. Listen in to what the Apostle Paul says. In Romans 3, verses 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under God's law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may become accountable to God. Because, here's a state of human nature, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You've got to preach, share who God is in His holiness. And He has spoken. And His law, if 
His grace is upon us. Convicts us of the reality of our sin. And so look how Luke goes on, and it's kind of, scholars argue, why did he just insert this here? I think this, in what we're saying right now, about the law and about the reality of the good news he's preaching is at least one of the reasons why he inserts it, starting, let's start with verse 18. And so, with many other exhortations, John the Baptist preached good news to the people. But, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So notice, John's preaching the good news. Which in this context, with this public figure, divorces his wife and seduces his half-brother's wife. John addressed it. He didn't make it up. All he had to do was turn to the Bible. And he addressed it. He didn't soften the message. And the reason John doesn't soften the message is because he knows that Herod nor anybody else throughout history would ever come to the real Jesus unless they first are convicted of their sinfulness. And Herod's reaction by imprisoning John and then, of course, later executing him. One thing that that shows the church of Jesus Christ is that faithful gospel, good news, Preaching is not always received for the good news that it is. You know, Ephesians 4, verses 18 and 19, lets us in on a little secret of what's happening. When it says that, quote, there are the, many are those who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the real world in which we live. In which the church of Jesus Christ, universal and broken up into tens of thousands of local expressions, exists. And since we know that, we might as well give up on trying to market Christianity. On trying to make Jesus and the gospel more palatable to hard hearted sinners. We do not have it within our power or our creativity in doing church to break down the defenses in the human heart that darkened, dead to God, sinners just like we were, erect. Only God can do it. 
And God has ordained to do it through the church. Through Christians. Faithfully giving the whole gospel. That's why Paul writes, and and don't, don't miss it, don't think this is just a 2,000 year down the road problem. It was a problem in the first century. And to the extent the Apostle Paul is in touch with his remaining sinfulness, which he was, he relates to you and me. At times. I don't know if I can say that. We may feel in moments with family, friends, workplace, Ashamed of the truth. But Paul writes in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now why Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes. How are they going to believe if you hide it, church, from them? Which leads to the second thing John teaches us that not only pointing to their sin, but pointing to the consequences of their sin, that there really is, there really is a judgment to come. It's John's message in our text. Flee. Run as fast as you possibly can from the wrath that's coming. And we just saw in verse 17, he just reiterated it. Here's Jesus. This is who Jesus is. He separates the wheat. From the chaff. And there is a chaff that will be burned. But the dominant theme in present day American evangelicalism is God loves you just the way you are. Be touched by that. Let that soften and melt your heart. And and then receive it. But the Bible clearly warns in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the anger of God remains on Him. In the Gospel preaching, to be crowds or one-on-one, people need to know if they don't turn around from their sin to the Savior 
then according to Romans chapter 2, verse 5, because of the hardness of their heart, their impenitent heart, they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This may be difficult at times. And in particular in relational context. And we need wisdom. Oh yeah, we need wisdom. But it is ultimately an essential part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in our text, according to verse 18 of Luke chapter 3, Luke puts that in there about John in the context of everything that's been said. He says, do you hear John? He called the people children of Satan. You brood of vipers. Religious Bible people. He said to them, God's just wrath or anger is hanging over you. You're sinners. There is forgiveness of that sin. He uses wheat and then chaff to be burned with unquenchable fire. And Luke says this is the way in which he preached the good news. And in his preaching, here's a third thing we need to learn. He exalts Jesus. Me? My baptism's nothing compared to that. He's mightier. I don't deserve to untie his sin into the lowliest task. John the Baptist would later say, and it's a famous quote, He, Jesus, must increase. I, John, popular public ministry, must decrease. So the lessons, whether pastors evangelists preaching to crowds. In our day of the internet, preachers could be being listened to by 38,000 people every, every week or whether one-on-one in a coffee shop with a friend. At the core of our message, the goal is the exaltation of Jesus. Not you! No wonder, again, why is it that, what was Paul seeing? And we know Paul's talking about other Christian, quote-unquote, preachers of his day, when he has to contend in 2 Corinthians, I preach not myself. But you're a good storyteller about your life and your kids and your family. It's not the gospel. You know, I'm going to quote something because I just love it. I just hope you like it too. Some of you remember 
E.V. Hill from L.A. He, he's died and gone on to heaven. But uh, Kent Hughes, let me, I'm quoting Kent Hughes, going to be quoting him, so just listen up. He writes, I once heard E.V. Hill, the pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. Let me just stop for a moment. You got to understand. You know, the, uh, we have a little term called black preaching. Very interactive, very unlike you people right here. So, so, so get, 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 yeah, where's the organ? Need an organ over here. Okay. So he once heard Pastor E.V. Hill tell the story of the, uh, of the ministry of an elderly woman in his church whom they all called 1800 because no one knew how old she was. 1800 was hard on unsuspecting visiting preachers because she would sit in the front row and as soon as the preacher began, she would say, Get him up! Referring to Christ. After a few minutes, if she did not think there was enough of Christ in the sermon, she would again shout, Get him up! If a preacher did not get him up, he was in for a long, hard day. <laughs> Pastor Hughes concludes, right here in this text, John the Baptist's response to misplaced adulation was to get him up. A noble task because it is the chief purpose of our existence. And so, see, the foundational way of this glorious message that the Savior from your sin and its consequence, there's a manner in which to do it. That's the point here. That's the point of John. And the manner is you are a wrath-deserving fellow sinner whom God's grace has come upon. And you're no better than those you're pleading with to come. We are fellow beggars telling other beggars where to find the true, everlasting, free bread of life. And so here's the bottom line. It is in the midst of the Gospel, this Gospel of Jesus Christ, going forth that the Lord Jesus baptizes people in the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, the goal of the church, the goal of individual Christians and of the community of saints is not to try to get people to be friendly with Jesus or to become churchgoers. The goal is that they would become one part of the one body of Christ. The way 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 puts it. For in one Spirit we were all baptized not with water. This is spirit baptism. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. 
who are all made to drink of one spirit. He does it by the means of the church of Christians being faithful to the gospel. And people get baptized by Jesus in the Spirit. (laughs) Which means they get saved. Which means that the wrath of God is turned totally away from them forever because it was meted out on their behalf through a substitute, Jesus Christ. What we're reading in our text, He's coming after me and He's going to baptize the Holy Spirit in fire. That's what happened to me. As an ignorant, God-belittling, undeserving 19-year-old punk kid. One day, this Jesus, and I didn't do anything to get He grabbed me through enough of the Word and dunked me into the Spirit. One thing this means, it means nothing less than this when we talk about this baptism of the Spirit, means nothing less than He regenerated me. He caused me to be born again. As Jesus would go on to say, the Spirit is like the wind. You don't see where it comes from or where it goes, but it just blew a bunch of trees down and trashes all over here. You see the effects. And you see the effects upon a sinner. It's... The effect is that aha moment. I mean, I intellectually always believed in Jesus. But something changed. Aha. The wind blew. Or Jesus dunked me. And I thought, He really is the Savior. I've never felt my need for a Savior is this deeply and and it's matching up with this message and it tastes really, really good to my soul. And so this baptism in the Spirit, it it, it, it means this new birth. And and it, it means this. It means that now God the Holy Spirit indwells you. Jesus said it this way in John 14. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. Now stop for a second. What are you talking about, Jesus? The world cannot say, I'm of the world, aren't I? Not anymore. His whole point is, when He baptizes you, when He grabs you, when He dunks you, sinner, you're different. Now you're not of the world. The reason you saw it and the world didn't, because you can't see it unless He dunks you. But then here's the promise. You know Him, for He dwells with you. And He will be in you. If you've been baptized with the Spirit, it means you now have this intimate, non 
lonely, intimate relationship with God the Father. He's not this relationship with wrath or as judge removed, but as Father. Because with the eternal Son, Jesus, by means of the Holy Spirit, we are crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. The only reason a wrath-deserving child born into this world in sin and a darkened soul could ever truly say, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, Jesus is Lord, or as in Galatians, cry, Abba, Father, is because an outside agent came to dwell in you. Or to use our text, because the Savior grabbed you leaned you back under the water of the Holy Spirit and brought you to life. That eternal Son become man who has always loved the Father shares that Spirit of love for the Father with you. And we only taste it in part now. But oh, isn't it enough to have confidence. I'm His and He is mine and He's grabbed me or the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Don't let demonic thoughts of comparison. But no, is there some taste of genuine love for the gospel, for Christ. There, if it's there, it's there. And know this third thing about being baptized with the Spirit. At that moment of dunking, He sealed you with the Spirit forever. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Ephesians 1, starting with verse 13. Christian, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment or the guarantee of our future inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Is that you? John said the coming one is going to come and He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let's close with that. That fire of the Spirit in those who are baptized by Jesus is the ongoing work of purification. 
In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 3, it's a prophecy of John the Baptist. It's a prophecy about his coming and his ministry as the forerunner. And listen carefully. Do not think John does not know this by heart. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, now watch. And the Lord, this is the one coming after. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi. Stop. To be a priest like Levi, which He's made you. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. We who have been mercied, who have been baptized into the Spirit by Jesus Christ, are being also refined by fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit. At the very moment of dunking, that's when, that very moment, faith, in Jesus sprung up and you were justified absolutely forgiven of sins perfectly made right with God not of any good doing or any fruits of your faith but only because one human being lived perfectly and sinlessly and God has put his life to your account the moment of faith. Then, there's the rest of this life. This process of holiness, of pursuit of holiness, of sanctification, of the refiner loving you so much He won't let you go. Loving you so much He will turn up fire. See, the picture of the refiner's fire is that the refiner would heat up the gold or the silver until it boiled into liquid. And then what happens is the non-silver, the non-gold, the, all the yucky junk in it will float to the top. And they would scrape it off. Cool it down. And do it again. Oh, for those cooling down. Periods. 
It is the love of God. It is the eternal love of God that refines His children. As I close, I want to quote the Apostle Peter. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter concerning His love for all in the context, verse 3, who have been born again and therefore they're guaranteed a future inheritance, verses 3 and 4. This is the context. It's there, but it's in the future. He picks up. It is you, believer, who by God's power, not your own, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Can you anchor your soul there? Because we need it. Verse 5. In this gospel truth, you rejoice. Here's the schizophrenic Christian life. You rejoice even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But why have you been grieved? Why is there pain? Why is there grief? Why, why is the fire heating up? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Father, precious Savior, Lord Jesus, we ask You to constantly pour out Your Holy Spirit upon us. And we beg of You in this age, in this day, in our world, to unprecedentedly baptize people in your Holy Spirit. And to that end, make us here at Sovereign Grace and your church universal become more and more faithful to the truth of the means of your baptism called the gospel of the salvation of lost sinners. Oh, would we become pure in our words more faithful to You in Your work on the cross, to the glory of Your name, and to the salvation and outpouring of Your Spirit drenching the earth. Amen.